From a makeshift studio in a closet in Alexandria, Virginia, I'm Tim Desher, and this is Heritage Explains. How do you view the president? Not necessarily President Trump or any one particular president, rather the office of the president and the power that comes with it. When we watch movies, we sometimes see a president of the United States making an incredible speech to rally citizens to defend a common enemy. Remember Harrison Ford in Air Force One when he looked in the camera and said directly to the enemy, it's your turn to be afraid. Or better yet, how about Bill Pullman in the movie Independence Day when before fighting the aliens, he declared a new Independence Day for the entire world. Such incredible displays of leadership and presidential power. I think this clip of Daniel Day-Lewis in the movie Lincoln sums it up pretty well. Buzzards got mad. I am the president of the United States of America clothed in immense power. Now, most of these movie speeches are typically received with cheers. It's a picture of unity and support after the president flexes his muscles and takes control of an out-of-control situation. Now, stop the movie and come back to reality. With the Chinese virus, we are indeed fighting an enemy, and President Trump is trying to rally support. But unlike the movies... Powerful leadership is not always greeted with cheers and applause. Here's New York Governor Andrew Cuomo in response to a question about President Trump suggesting an enforceable quarantine for New York. I don't even know what that what that means. I don't know how that could be legally enforceable. Uh, And from a medical point of view, I don't know what you would be accomplishing. Uh, but I can tell you, I just, I don't even like the sound of it. Not even understanding what it is, I don't like the sound of it. And how about we let former Vice President Joe Biden weigh in on the situation? We should be making those masks. We should be moving on those ventilators. We can do that. Why doesn't he just act like a president? The federal government should be surging its capacity on a day-to-day, minute-to-minute basis to help these governors. The federal government has to lead this. With all that's going on with the Chinese virus and the constantly changing information each day, and don't forget the politics of it all, it's hard to understand what power the president actually has under the Constitution. Is he allowed to call a national quarantine? Is he allowed to take over businesses and force them to make things? Can he even enforce orders like this? Finally, what is the best way to use this power while at the same time working with states and not infringing on their power? To clear this up, we go to the experts, Cully Stimson and David Rivkin. Cully is a senior legal fellow and manager of the National Security Law Program here at the Heritage Foundation. 
David is a constitutional lawyer who has served in the Justice and Energy Departments, as well as the White House Counsel's Office during the Reagan and George H.W. Bush administrations. This week, they tag-team this complex issue and explain. Cully and David, I want to thank you for joining me uh, today for the show. Pleasure. It's great to be with you, Tim. Cully, let's talk about the breakdown of power. In a situation like this, how much power, where is the power divide between states and federal government? What can the federal government make the states do, and what can the states do to say, no, we're not going to do that? (laughs) Well, let me take it from the bottom up. Uh, and start with the states, because we have individual states, they're sovereign entities, each has a state constitution, the governor is the head of each state, and each state constitution assigns to the the governor uh, several powers, one of which, of course, is they're the head of the executive branch, and so therefore uh, they uh, have the authority to issue uh, reasonable uh, rules, such as a situation like this, state quarantines, stay away orders, when driven by uh, the medical and health care uh, uh, advice and data that we're getting, uh, those can be reasonable decisions uh, and oftentimes are reasonable uh, decisions. The state governor also has a state militia called a National Guard. Uh, they can utilize that uh, militia, that National Guard, it's actually a state guard, uh, to do any number of things uh, under the state constitution, like uh, deliver medical supplies, like help with floods and hurricanes and, and massive fires, if, uh, quelling the peace if there were riots in cities. Uh, here, uh, three states uh, to date have activated their state militia, their guard forces, uh, to help with the delivery of medical supplies and whatnot. Uh, and you saw President Trump... Um, uh, issue an executive order indicating that the federal government would reimburse the states for their use of their militia, their state guards, uh, for the cost of calling them up because it's not free. I mean, these are part-time uh, soldiers, uh, and so they're, uh, the, the federal government, we taxpayers, are going to reimburse those states for recalling uh, those folks to, uh, to guard duty. Can you see a situation in which um, President Trump would take, con- could he take control of uh, state national guards or militias? Of course. Uh, most presidents have uh, nationalized the state national guards. Um, and of course, you know, we're used to seeing it happen in wartime situations. So we're used to seeing uh, the president uh, uh, uh issue uh, an order to uh, send state national guardsmen, call them up under the active duty side, uh, and uh, use them in Iraq and Afghanistan, Guantanamo, and other places. Uh, But here, I think it's perfectly within the uh, president's authority and under the statutory authority he has to uh, federalize state national guardsmen uh, if he wanted to. We haven't seen that yet. What we've seen is the governors, who are the commanders-in-chief of their state militia, uh, activating those state guardsmen for for the express purpose of working within their states. David, uh, this is obviously, like I said at the beginning, uncharted territory for somebody like me who's never been through something like this. Um, a big frustration of mine is not being able to travel. I love to travel, um, and now I'm being told to, you know, from governors and the president, stay home, stay in my room. Um, I'm I'm interested because in your piece you talk about the difference between 
regulating interstate and intrastate travel. Um, obviously, um, they can make calls to say stay at home, but can the president um, make someone actually not fly? Yes, appropriate circumstances the president has with legal authority. The president can not only close the borders that the United States has with Canada and Mexico, uh, the president can forbid interstate travel. To emphasize, only the president can forbid interstate travel. States can forbid intrastate travel. Can the president forbid intrastate travel as well? Yes, or is that, yes okay. he can. Okay. The president can impose a variety of quarantine measures. They do not have to be uniform, unlike many, many Democrats uh, and the media are calling these days, which I think, frankly, is more political because you do not want to have a situation that some states have done better in terms of balancing public safety and, uh, and economic considerations than others. So they kind of want to have one common denominator. So yes, the president can impose uh, and, and makes sense to impose one set of restrictions in the hot zones, a different set of restrictions in zones that are still have widespread uh, uh, incidence of coronavirus, but not that bad and probably very little in, in most places that do not have that. And just for more context for me, um, intrastate means travel within a state, not not past state boundaries, but within a state. So can a governor push back against presidents? No. Okay. No. Well, let me say this. You can, and this is an important, I'll be a somewhat pedantic consideration. So if you're the governor of state X, you can say nobody can move within my state. Okay. You cannot say nobody can cross the border from a neighboring state into my state. But if a person moves his foot across the border, he'll be subject to stay in place. So as a pr pragmatic matter, you can ensure that you do not have people coming from other states. But technically, you're not forbid interstate travel. The president can do that. But let me also say this. The president can go up or down. A lot of people in the media, for some reason, don't understand this point. They're saying, well, even if President Trump comes up with a more relaxed guidelines, it's still up to the governors. If a president decides, but from a perspective of interstate commerce, for purposes of things like Defense Production Act and other federal statutes, a governor who decides to overreact and shut everything down is causing harm, the president can come up with a different, not just guidelines, the president could come, politically would be quite aggressive because then he would have full responsibility what's happening in that state. He can say, no, we're not going to let you shut down in the entire Pennsylvania. We're going to tell you to do this. Very importantly, because of uh, federalism-related doctrines, again, we have a federal republic, a federal government, we have states. Federal government cannot tell states what to do as a matter of state law or state programs, but they can override what the state is doing. It is of the utmost importance to all of us here at The Daily Signal to ensure you are receiving the best information about how you and your loved ones can stay healthy during the coronavirus pandemic. Here is an important message from Dr. Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, on what to do if you think you might have COVID-19. People who are sick should stay home. You don't go to an emergency room, you don't go to a clinic, you get on the phone and you ask for advice and instructions from your physician. Then you use those instructions to determine what you're gonna do. But the first reflex 
should not be, I feel sick, I'm gonna to go to an emergency room. I feel sick, I'm gonna just go to a doctor's office. We need to physically separate. Ultimately, you may need, obviously, to see a physician or to go to a hospital. The first reflex should be to make a call to your physician. Tell me about stay-at-home orders. Now, I, we hear this all the time. Stay at home, stay at home, wash your hands, don't be within six feet of people, all this stuff. Stay at home, stay at home, stay at home. What is the enforcement behind that? I, I, was, I was in line at a grocery store literally the other night, and someone said, I don't know if I should be out or not because I might be arrested. Now, is, I mean, obviously, that's probably an overreaction, but either of you can, can, can take this one, but I'm just curious um, what, what a stay-at-home order means. Well, uh, there are varying degrees of a stay-at-home order. Uh, there's the uh, suggestion to stay at home, which is at one end of the spectrum, which people should heed, and many people will. Yeah. Uh, there is a state order from a governor saying stay at home, which is a state rule which can be enforced by the governor either uh, uh, by uh, having local police uh, stand on the streets, stand at the entrances to the beach, which is happening in California right now. I just talked to somebody, a lawyer in California, about what's happening in San Diego, and he said, um, we've been told to stay at home, and uh, you're allowed to go out and exercise, but you can't congregate uh, and so peop- the police are guarding the entrances and parking lots to the beach. And when people go out on the beach, if they start congregating, the police say, please don't congregate. And people understand that socially that's in- in- unacceptable and they just do it voluntarily. And right? that, that policing power is that is a state that is a state power. Correct. That right. is, that's but not something the federal government federal um, government can do. I mean, federal government yeah. could do. The federal government has put out federal guidelines, well, in order to follow a certain quarantine regime. Uh, if it's necessary, you can either federalize, as Kali said, uh, the National Guard, or frankly, which is another thing we can discuss, use armed forces. Because while armed forces are generally not used for law enforcement purposes in something called posse comitatus, which dates back to uh, po- uh, post-Civil War years, there are exceptions. Uh, in a situation, there's a widespread breakdown of law and order, uh, uh, something approaching a state of insurrection, so you, federal government can use, the state government can use state militia, as Kali said, plus state police department uh, and local municipal police departments. The federal government can use armed forces and federalize militia. I don't, we don't see it happening, but yes, most powers are there. And the most extreme version of what quarantines right now, stay-at-home orders, is you can only go to buy food. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think there's any state or locality that said, can I go for any purpose because right. then people will starve. Right, yeah. Uh, and it would not work. But yes, you can tell people to stay, to stay at home. And I think there are some discussions in New York, New York uh, uh, City, that if you go out for any other purpose, you can be fined or arrested. Not sure how you check that. Right. Uh, well, let me give you one example. Apparently, uh, Mayor de Blasio is not happy about people jogging, which is kind of surprising. So if you are out in the joggers clothes... Yeah, I don't like that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's hard to argue that you're really planning to go to a food store. But right. I don't know how that would be proven. You can say, I'm just jogging to a food store, and I decided to wear a jogging outfit. And carry the bags home. Yeah, carry the right. bags home. Right, <laughs> and so we, we, you know, we didn't... We, of course, like with every op-ed, you're limited by the number of words you can put on a page, but... Um, and we didn't want to paint every black swan scenario, but to answer your question, Tim, uh, you could see in a situation where uh, there's a stay-at-home order by a governor, 
uh, and you have a whole bunch of people from a community uh, ignoring that and having a COVID-19 celebration in a park or, you know, a massive dog walk or a walk for solidarity. And, and the governor uh, and the mayor of that town saying, please don't do that. Please go home. And they don't do it. And they still get out there and do it. You can see the police getting out there uh, and arresting some of the people uh, uh, for violating the state governor's order. Uh, yeah, let me just add one thing. Look, we do have a rule of law. Anything and everything is done by federal government and state governors or mayors is subject to judicial challenge. Now, I would submit to you that it's highly unlikely that even excessive quarantine measures in the current time would be successfully challenged. But if some mayor decides to continue for several months, this uh, it would be subject to a rational basis review. You can challenge it and, uh, and, and have appropriate recourse. So these things are not beyond the reach of a legal process. David, is there a a certain, you know, we, we hear everybody say, we got to work together, we got to work together, put politics aside. Put pol-. Great, that's awesome. Can you assign a certain percentage of responsibility between what percentage of the federal, the federal government should be acting and what percentage of the state government should be acting? Should it be 50-50? Should it be 100-100? Should it be 70% federal, 30% state? What, how would you break that down? Look, I'm a big believer in federalism. Federalism is our constitutional architecture. It protects individual liberty. In fact, it's the core way of protecting individual liberty above and beyond the Bill of Rights. Basically means you have two sovereigns, each stays in its own lane. As accountability, people know who is, which sovereign is doing what to them and how. Bottom line is there's absolutely no reason to breach this framework. The states should do what the states are doing. The federal government should only intervene if, if it's beyond the state authority, like uh, interstate uh, travel bans, or... The president thinks, in good faith, that a given state of states is doing something that's harming the country as a whole. Kelly, um, I was talking with you a little earlier, and you mentioned something that I never even considered when thinking about this, which is potential infringement on a fundamental right, like religious liberty. You know, a governor says, we're all gatherings of, you know, 50 or more are done, or 25 or whatever it is, and I'm thinking about churches. Is this something that, that they could challenge on, you know, uh, a, a violation of their First Amendment right? How, how does this work in this atmosphere? Well, to, to, to pick up on David's uh, last answer, I mean, there is going to be uh, potentially litigation, uh, depend, especially if this, uh, these orders drag out and people feel that uh, the restraints on their, their liberties uh, are too burdensome. Uh, but you already see state orders saying you can't have gatherings of 10 or more people. And we've already seen questions coming uh, from our very intelligent members at Heritage and elsewhere about, well, what about my church gatherings? Does that mean I can't I, go to church? I went online last week. <laughs> right. And, and, and I think, that, you know, civil society is adapting to this and churches are doing a good job providing uh, for their flock uh, via online and other resources uh, but, you know, these measures are meant to be temporary. Hmm. Uh, they're meant to be temporary to suppress the virus. And so, for example, the case that we uh, cited in our op-ed, Jacobson against Massachusetts from 1905, a Supreme Court decision, uh, Mr. Jacobson didn't want to be vaccinated for the smallpox. Hmm. Uh, and, of course, we had a smallpox vaccine at the time, and he refused to do it, and he violated state law in Massachusetts. So he was prosecuted, and he was convicted, and he appealed it his case all the way to the Supreme Court. And uh, John Marsh, the Justice John Marshall Harlan wrote the 7-2 to two majority decision, and he basically said, and you can 
read the language in our op-ed itself or read the read the uh, decision itself online that you know uh, these restraints on liberty uh, are reasonable under the circumstances uh, and no one's allowed to do anything they want when the public health is at jeopardy and so uh, you know now uh, if this virus isn't suppressed for you know God forbid six months a year two years from now and these restraints on liberty persist uh, people, uh, may be challenging or, or, or challenging these, these restraints or acting out uh, in other ways. But I agree with David 100% that, you know, the Constitution is exquisitely designed to handle things like this. Uh, the state constitutions are in place uh, and give the governors the appropriate amount of authority to deal with this at the state level. Let me just cut in and agree with Kali. But even now, what the government is doing has to be rational. So, for example, nobody has done it, but if you had a, a version of a quarantine which said, for example, that a particular type of religion is exempt from a general ban, it would go down immediately. You cannot do that. The other thing, which is a big bugaboo for me, you have a bunch of uh, what I consider to be insane hostility to the Second Amendment. You have uh, some places that have banned effectively gun stores from functioning of not including them in, in essential services. Uh, I'm sure it's being challenged, and I would have high degree of confidence that would go down because there's absolutely no rational basis to suggest that you cannot go and exercise your Second Amendment rights, especially at a time where because of the emergency, a lot of police services are curtailed. Mm-hmm. So think about how absurd it is. So the police is less able to defend you than on a, on a regular day. And even then, it's not perfect. But you cannot go exercise your Second Amendment right to protect yourself. So as always, unfortunately, you've got various people and, 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 and political groups that are using this crisis and an immortal expression. They don't want it to go to waste. Now, my expression, <laughs> like a, a certain individual from we Chicago remember that. coined it, yes. Yeah, Cully. So, so let's tie these two answers together quickly. Um, the religion question and the Second Amendment question. The, the stay-at-home orders or the no gatherings more than 10 people order is a generic order. It, does, it applies to everybody. It applies to people who want to go to school, who want to go to their choir practice, who want to go to their dance recital, who want to go to their dog show, who want to do anything, and people who want to assemble for church. The Second Amendment issue it's an individual right. And right. we know from the recent Supreme Court decisions that uh, the people have the right to keep and bear arms themselves. And so any infringement, as David said, would be an infringement on their personal liberty. And this is an infringement, by the way, I mean, what getting the details of McDonald case and Hiller case, this is not a restriction on bearing arms in public. This is a restriction on not being able to get arms, period, but you may want to use it at home. So right. completely, completely unconstitutional and regrettable. Makes no sense. Cully, can you walk me through this? Because I've seen, you mentioned it in the piece, and, um, and I've seen it around as well, the, the, the Public Health Service Act. Can you explain that for me a little bit? Sure. It's a federal act uh, that we reference in our op-ed. Um, and uh, we argue that um, although we think that uh, the act doesn't specifically uh, allow, d- delineate uh, this authority, we think that the president uh, could arguably use that act uh, to issue a, a national quarantine order. We do think under under Supreme Court precedent and under just common best practices that it's, it might be better for the president to go to Congress to specifically get a statute 
uh, specifically authorizing that if they even wanted to go that way. But, you know, remember that the Articles of Confederation failed uh, in part because uh, we did not have a commander in chief right. uh, and a single person in charge of the executive branch that had all the authority that one needed for a person to act with dispatch. And I could envision, as I'm sure David and others could envision, a scenario where the president has to act uh, very quickly. And you see the Congress right now, they can't even pass a $2 trillion emergency spending package with dispatch. They're arguing over procedural matters. They're caterwauling about this, that, and the other. Well, They're that, that was this, that, and the other thing. That so, was my next question. Yeah. Are we close to this? I mean, David, do you, can you see this being enacted, a national quarantine? I mean, are, are we on the path to that, or is are we... Are we doing a good enough job right now to avoid uh, this? I'm not an, a doctor, but I, I <laughs> do not see that. But the important thing is, look, I frankly think it would be useful if you get beyond the Trump derangement syndrome to give the president explicit authority to do that. We don't need it now, but God forbid there would be something in the future, a deadly pandemic, uh, a more serious problem. It, it, it would be useful to have, to give the president the tools. Now, of course... Trump haters would say we don't want to give any tools to Trump because he can abuse them, but hmm. that's 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 a wrong answer. Yeah, and we've we've seen his response with the Defense Production Act, and um, you know, not using that willy nilly like he's being called on by certain Democrat governors and um, and and members of the media. So um, I think we're we might be in good footing there. But but Cully, tell me just just from from your perspective. What point do we need to reach before we really start to see the federal government taking over within the states? Well, I don't know what point that would be, frankly, Tim. David may have other thoughts about it. I think right now that there's a delicate uh, balance, uh, equipoise between the governors getting the data from the Centers for Disease Control and listening to the top public health officials, including the estimable Dr. Fauci, uh, and then looking at what's happening on the ground and trying to apply, you know, match one to the other and taking the measures, hopefully, that they think are reasonable and that are indeed reasonable uh, to suppress the virus uh, in their particular jurisdiction. And the, I think the federal government is to be commended. That's not perfect, but be, to be commended for pushing out as much information as possible, updating websites, uh, judiciously using the Defense Production Act, which is an act that was passed in 1950. I wrote about it on the Daily Signal. Uh, it's been used by every president since then. It was mm. originally designed uh, to help with national defense, but it's been expanded over the years to include natural disasters and whatnot. And it allows the president, gives the president the statutory authority to put his thumb on private industry and saying, hey, uh, we need more ventilators. Right. You can produce those. You will produce those. Here's a contract and you will produce those. So, I, you know, uh, I don't know what... It's a what scary concept. <laughs> it's not. It's not. I mean, look... To, look, to, look, to have that power, I'm saying, but well, he is using, in this situation. Kelly yeah. uh, is right. He's using it very judiciously. In fact, ironically enough, uh, some of our more left-leaning Democrats, which to say most of them, sorry to be partisan, are pushing him to use the Defense Production Act more fulsomely, including taking over facilities. He's resisted this pointing out the government is not very good at running uh, industrial facilities, so if you right. can convince somebody who's running it now to do what you need, what the heck do you want to take it over? So, again, he is being very restrained. He is not being imperial at all, which I've not noticed anybody giving him, aside from me and Cully, much credit for, but he is, he is being judicious. 
And that's it for another episode of Heritage Explains. I've linked to Cully and David's Wall Street Journal article and a few other resources on presidential powers. So please log on wherever you listen and check out the show notes. And how are you doing? We'd love to hear from you. We'd love for you to share with us your experience so far during the Chinese virus. We want to hear it all, good times and bad. And and just remember, whatever it is, we're here with you and we're in this together. Go ahead and leave us a comment wherever you listen, or you can send us an email at managingeditor at heritage.org. Now, next week, we have a special episode as the great Michelle Cordero and I will actually be co-hosting an episode together. I know it's crazy, but next week it's on. So we'll see you then. Heritage Explains is produced by Michelle Cordero and Tim Desher with editing by Thalia Rampersad.